How are we there? I'm so glad to be here. I, I love, I, listen, I've been here for like a half an hour and I love this place. She's amazing. Don is amazing. You guys realize what you have? Plus, yeah. Um, and then I met Al. I haven't met the campus pastor. But uh, you knew to bow. Yes, yes. Um, your wife told me that she has to do that too. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm so impressed with this place, honestly. And, and I was telling uh, the sound guys back there that um, I was speaking, I used to speak to about a quarter of a million high school kids a year. That was kind of my job when I had hair. And, um, you know, now I would rather speak to kids, but I have to speak to people like you because I'm old. Um, but I was in Kansas because I'm, I'm actually, my whole family's from Kansas. They're from the Topeka area. And I was speaking on sex. And uh, about 2,500 kids here in Kansas City area. And I said, um, we have something in common. How many of you were born in Kansas, realizing that you know, at least half the kids were probably born in Missouri or whatever? And, you know, but about three quarters of them go, yeah. And I go, we have something in common. I was conceived in Kansas. And I looked at the, I realized high school kids didn't know what the word conceived meant, number one. And so then I had to explain it, which was a little bit awkward. And, um, and I said, but my mom was pregnant and we went out to California and you know, now I'm from California. And the kids just kind of looked at me. It didn't work is what I'm saying, you know. A woman came up to me afterwards, and I had spoken to high school kids, unashamedly Christian, unashamedly blunt. So, I mean, I had talked about pornography, I would talked about actually uh, oral sex, and, and all with the, what the people wanted me to say. I mean, they were willing me to say this, it was gonna be, it was, remember, it was Christian. A woman came up to me afterwards, and she was so upset. She said, I am really frustrated with how you just spoke to those kids. She said, at the beginning, you said you were conceived, and the picture you put in their mind, and I was like, Oh, it, I was okay talking about oral sex. I was okay talking about this other stuff. And um, I just realized that she had a concern about that one issue. And uh, so, but anyway, how many of you were born in Kansas? <laughs> okay, good. Can you, you, oh, you weren't? No, I actually wasn't. You don't know. <laughs> and you didn't know when you were where you were born? I'm the opposite of you. I was born in California. Seriously. So I felt the unity. We, we have something going. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to stop and pray for this woman because she didn't know where she was born. That's a problem. But anyway, there we are. Well, we're talking about confident parenting. Confident parenting. Is that just like the worst two words? I mean, parenting is a great word. Confident is a great word. But you put those together. I mean, there's no one in here, I would imagine, who's a confident parent. I'm not. I was until I had kids. As soon as kids started coming in, I began to lose my confidence um, as a parent. And confident parenting is kind of like an oxymoron. It's kind of like diet ice cream, okay? I mean, because we aren't very confident at times. And I know we're in church and you know, we have our campus pastor here, so I need to get to the scripture pretty quick. But let me give you Disney real fast, okay? Lilo and Stitch. This is my family. It may be small, it may be broken, but it's still good. Okay. And you know what the truth is, is no one has a perfect family. And a lot of us come to church and we think that the people sitting next to us have some kind of a perfect family and that, you know, we're somewhat of a mess. Well, I got news for you. We're all a mess. Okay. And the truth is, is that, you know, we all could use some things and no one is a perfect parent. Okay. No one does it right. No one has it together. And when you walk out of here, I hopefully can give you some input, but you're still not going to, you know, totally have it together. I want to read you a scripture, and it's a scripture that's very famous when it comes to uh, parenting type things, and it says this. It's in your notes, by the way. It'll appear on the, uh, on the screen, I'm sure, too. Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not turn from it. That is not a promise that your kids are going to be perfect, but it is a, it is a direction for us to learn to train up our kids. And so I think we actually have to be intentional when it comes to this. 
So the question at the beginning is this. Are you parenting in your own life? Are you parenting by circumstance and chance? Or are you parenting with purpose and a plan? And if we're really honest, a lot of us parent by circumstance and chance. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are many times in our life, our kids are now in their adults, they're in their 20s. We still, um, you know, are parenting them. But, um, you know, they're in their 20s. But when our kids were younger, we'd go, oh, we got through Thursday. And then we wake up on Friday and go, oh my gosh, we got to do this again, you know. And so we loved it. At the same time, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy. And we didn't have role models. I wasn't raised in, with a, in a Christian family. My parents weren't horrible people. My dad was an alcoholic, but a good guy. He was a functioning alcoholic. My mom was wonderful, but not, again, not perfect and not Christian. And so I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, and I went away to college, Christian college, very first day. I was sitting in the back in the nerd section, where you people are. You know who you are? Yeah, yeah, right? You all raised your hand. And, um, and she was sitting in the first row, and she was gorgeous. And so I said to my two new nerd friends, see that girl down there? And they said, she's beautiful. And I said, one day I'm going to take her out on a date. And they looked at her beauty, and they looked at me, and they, they laughed. You're right. All the nerds said they laughed. I get that. Um, but, you know, one week after college graduation, we got married. And uh, we've been married 43 years, okay, so, which is cool. But we thought parenting would be better because we were Christian. We were both involved in ministry. My background was youth ministry and going into that. That's what she was doing. And so we thought we were, you know, a perfect match. And our first year was really hard. I'm not moving this to a marriage seminar. I'm just simply saying it was hard. And that actually has something to do with our parenting side. I mean, I can remember being a youth pastor at a church, and I would drive with Kathy to the church, and we would argue on the way to church, and then I would talk to the kids about the joy of a Christian family, feeling somewhat hypocritical, okay? So it has you all feeling excited about me and my parenting. Um, and we came up with something that first year. We, ta we talked a lot about the D word, divorce. Our families, there was, divorce was rampant. Um, and about a year into it, we said, we're not going to say the D word and uh, we're just, even if we're miserable, we're going to get away from that. Kathy still says the M word, murder, but that's another story. <laughs> and um, we came up with two words, and I think it's important for some of you to hear this. Not all of you, but I think some of you need to hear this. We came up with two words one year into our marriage, transitional generation. The Bible says that you, you actually inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth generation. Are you aware of that? It's all throughout the Old Testament. And what we realized was we didn't, I wasn't an alcoholic and, you know, Kathy wasn't as crazy as her family. My family was alcohol. Hers was just kind of crazy. And yet we realized we were either going to recover or repeat those sins. And so about a year into the marriage, that would be 42 years ago, um, we said, we're going to be people who recover. And I'm here to say that it is actually the best thing we've ever done. It's the hardest thing we've ever done. Okay. But it was good. Now, fast forward the story. My daughter, Christy, who's my oldest, totally strong-willed. All three of my girls are strong-willed, but she's like the strongest-willed of the strong-willed. Um, she was giving it to Kathy. Now, this is the kid who was the leader of the worship band in our high school group. She also was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes at our school. But at our house, she was driving us nuts, okay? And I don't know if you have a three-year-old. At three years old, there was some time. She was in the terrible twos from two to like 14, and then she had one break for a bit, and then she went back to it, and now she's wonderful. But she was really hassling Kathy, and uh, I came in, and I heard it, and so I did what any good passive-aggressive husband, father would do. I stayed out of there, and she was letting Kathy have it. There were times, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm in the other room, and I'm listening, and I'm going, oh, that's kind of true about your mom, but I wouldn't say that, Christy. You know? <laughs> and 
all of a sudden, she totally escalated, and I did what I should have done earlier, and I walked in, and I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. And I honestly thought Christy was going to turn to me and say, Dad, you are most holy and most blessed. Instead, she turned on me. So now it's personal. It wasn't personal before. She was hassling Kathy. So honestly, I gave her the dad look. Now, I've written, you know, books on parenting, and I shouldn't tell you this, but what I wanted to do was stab her in the neck with a plastic fork, but, you know, that's not what you do. So I sent her upstairs, and I followed her. And she closed the door. When she slammed the kitchen door, we have a sign that says, bless this house. It went crazy, uh, crooked, and we just left it with that. So I said, Christy, I want to talk to you. And I said, first of all, I want to say something. I want to say that some of the things about mom that you said are true. So, you know, she's 17, so she's like, cool, dad's on my side. I went, but I never want you to talk to my wife like that again. And she kind of went like, whoa. You know, I wasn't screaming. My dad was a screamer. I, I'm not a screamer at all. So I was just, it was quieter than what, how I'm saying to you. I just said, I can't really want you to talk to her. My, that's my wife. And she was like, whoa, I guess you guys are, you know, married. Maybe that would offend you. She didn't say that. She was thinking that, I think. And I said, I want to tell you a story. I said, you know, we are, got married, and as you well know, you're 17, so you figured this out. We came from dysfunctional families, and, and, you know, they're still a little dysfunctional. I wasn't throwing the family under the bus. It was just they, you know, she knows. And I said, so mom and I came up with two words. We've never told you this, transitional generation. Bible says, and I told her, you know, the Bible says you inherit the sins of the previous generation, at least the sin bent. And I said, but your mom is the woman in my life who has grown the most. I've never seen anybody grow from deficit land because she, she was raised in a deficit family, a broken family, very broken. And she's grown to here and she continues to grow. I said, I've never seen anybody grow like your mom has. Honestly, I don't know one person who's grown as much as mom. And, and Christy was kind of like, yeah, I kind of get that. And I said, and so we came up with these words, recover or repeat. And so what we've chosen to do is to try to recover. And so the chain of brokenness that we're trying to break is on your mom's shoulders, actually not on your shoulders. And I said, so mom goes from here to here so that, Christy, you can start someplace in the middle and you can move farther than mom or dad ever will if you choose. And she started to cry. Again, I'm not yelling at her. She's got it. She goes, well, I need to go apologize to mom because you're right. So she walked downstairs and she gave Kathy a hug and Kathy looked at me like, did you bribe her? You know, I mean, it wasn't that. But the point that I want to say is that as any time anybody comes in for even a short time like this and talks about parenting, sometimes we feel guilty or sometimes we say, but you know, my background, I didn't have the skills or, or whatever. What I want to say to you is that there are some things and I'm going to, without apologies, talk about different scriptural principles today that I think work when it comes to parenting. And even as much as we'll talk about our kids, I want to make sure that, that you understand that it's not just about you. Really good parents have kids who make poor choices. Can I say that again? Really good parents have kids who make poor choices. You know why? Because a sinner married another sinner, and then you have sinnerlings, and they sort of bump into each other. And so first and foremost, before we even get to anything, we're going to have to make sure that you admit your own brokenness and be ruthlessly honest about your brokenness. I'm not talking about your kid's brokenness or your spouse's brokenness if you're married. I realize there might be a single parent in here, and single parents do a great job a lot of times, but they're so tired they don't know that, okay? But admit your own brokenness. Secondly is develop the courage to change. So everything I say tonight, don't change everything, just tweak. What, God, what are you saying to me today? Is there something that I can do? Is there, is there something that, that this man can hand to me that maybe, you know, we could tweak a little bit? I mean, I'll meddle in your life. I'm glad to do that. Also, make sure that you establish replenishing relationships. We were not meant to parent alone, and we were not meant to do marriage alone, by the way. 
And so we need replenishing relationships. I oftentimes talk about VDPs, very draining people, and all of us have very draining people in our life. But do we also have VIPs? You know, today I missed my seven o'clock meeting because I was on a plane at 6.45 to get here, but I'm every Tuesday with some VDPs, I mean, from some not VDPs, VIPs, incredible men. I've been with them for 15 years. They're amazing. They're older than me. They're wiser. I feel like they're mentors, and yet I feel so blessed to be with them every Tuesday. And, you know, we kind of open up our life. They replenish my life big time. And then also make sure that we have the eternal perspective. We can choose to do parenting without God, even as Christians, and a lot of Christians do that, but I'm suggesting that since he's the creator of all, and he's the creator of family, that maybe we want to do it in his way. Now, let's take a quiz real quick, okay? You're going to have to do this in front of your, of your campus pastor here. Um, should have never sat in the front, and somebody should have never pointed out. Right, yeah, sorry. Um, so anyway, what is the most often quoted scripture in the Bible? This, this church is known for knowing good Bible. They get great Bible teaching. What is, what's the most often quoted scripture? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You're wrong. And you're wearing a Kansas City football shirt, and you could probably beat me up, but I got to say you're wrong. <laughs> totally, I, I know the answer. Somebody else? What's that? For I know the plans for you. Yeah, plans project Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, no. So you're, you're 0 for 2, buddy. <laughs> Somebody said Philippians? 4-2? Philippians 4, 12 or 4, 13, maybe. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah. No. <laughs> I love that. I love that verse, though. Huh? Shouldn't judge your neighbor. You shouldn't judge your neighbor, but, but no, it's not, it's not the judge thing. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. No. In the big inning. Well, you're still in sports, in baseball, in the big inning, okay? Um, no, you're 0 for 3. You struck out. <laughs> okay, it's actually in the Old Testament, and it's actually in your notes. If you go to the next page, you'd see it. And here's the point. I guarantee you this is the most often quoted scripture, and let me tell you why. It's a trick question a little bit, because every morning in an Orthodox Jewish home today, they quoted it, and every evening they quoted it. In fact, no doubt, it was probably the first scripture that Jesus ever heard, and it was probably from his mother, not his father, and Mary would have held him as a baby, and she would have almost in a chanting-type way quoted the scripture. In fact, every Sabbath, every Sabbath at church, a lot of liturgy within the synagogue, within a Jewish tradition, they stand and they recite this, and it's called the Shema. So this is the lesson of the Shema, but it has something to do with us big time. You're actually experiencing it in a cool way, what you're doing in these four, um, in these four nights here at, at your church. But it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, at this point, they would just start standing. You don't have to, but they would stand because it's the Holy of Holies for them. This is their plan and purpose for their family. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be written upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Okay, let's stop right there. Two points real quick. One is, it's faithfulness and fidelity to God. So the Jews, and the reason the Jews have stayed so strong, even in the, before the time of Jesus, this was written in Deuteronomy, but it was spoken even before the, the, it was written down. It was, you know, there was one God, and actually they call him the Lord, which is, there's different words for God in Hebrew, and the word uh, Yahweh is a word that they use, but they also use this word Adonai, which means he's the master. It's much more personal. So there's one God, so loyalty and faithfulness to God. And then it says, you live it out and impress it on your children. So 
The job is for us as parents to do that. None of us feel equipped to do that when it comes to the spiritual issues. Okay, now this church is more equipped than most churches I've ever heard of. When I went down to the blessing wall and just what happens at baptism, what's happening here. I mean, it's amazing. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the job is not the church. Listen to this, 65% of kids who graduate from great churches like this today, and I just read the article today again, but I read another article on it, but 65% of, church, uh, of kids will leave the church for a bit. Make, some of them come back when they make babies and have, you know, get married and stuff, but not all. But they're leaving the church. However, listen to this, there is a 300% better chance that they'll stay in the church if there are faith conversations in the home. So some of the things that Don is doing and that the others around here are doing with Plugged In and other things that are going on in the church, you know, week after week, that's a huge thing. So when I look at these kids that are fleeing, you know, it's good kids who are fleeing, okay? And so the fascinating side is, is that when parents, you impress it on them. You don't have to be perfect, but you want to be authentic. And so that's, that's a fascinating quote. By the way, that's from George Barna, who studied that, as well as a man named Richard Ross in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Both did a study separately, came up with 300% better chance. And then it goes on to tell you even how you do it. Talk about it when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, uh, we drive most likely, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, which means take God to work, and bind them on your foreheads, meaning put them into your mind, and then write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So in other words, every Jew, if you go to Israel ever, anybody been to Israel in here? So if you've been to Israel, they have something called the mezuzah, and on every doorpost, there's a mezuzah, and inside every mezuzah, and there are millions of them, there, there's a Shema. Shema just simply means to listen, and that's the scripture. So when you, I mean, in your hotels, if you go to Israel, there's a mezuzah, and inside it's the Shema. So, I mean, it's kind of a cool thing. But that's the, the plan and the purpose of the Hebrew people. Now, I've just spent 10 minutes talking about it, but let me describe it to you in one minute with a quick video. This is actually a video at our church. What we do is every first Wednesday of every month, we do kind of a parent training like this, and the kids go and do what your kids... By the way, your kids are going to be so wild. I mean, it's this water thing. Can you imagine them getting into your car? They're going to be crazy. So you guys are going to be all like, oh, wow, we're into parenting. And they're going to be like going, wah! Okay, so that ought to be a good mixture uh, come 8 o'clock. Um, but anyway, uh, here's a video that I'm going to show you. And uh, it really makes a lot of sense. And what I said was we, we use this as a promo for our church. So you're going to see, there's going to be at the very end, you'll see the names from our church. But, but don't miss this. Here you go. There are 52 weeks in a year. That means that there are 52 weekends that a person could possibly come to church. 52 weeks that a child could come to experience kid or student life at our church. But we know that with vacations, sickness, travel for sports, a perfect attendance record is not particularly realistic. According to research, a child in a family that normally attends church is attending approximately 40 weekends a year. 40 hours a year that our kid or student life ministries have to lead and foster the spiritual direction of your family. 40 hours a year, that's it. However, a parent of that same child has approximately 3,000 hours to teach, communicate, and lead. Not 40, 3,000. So who should be in charge of your family's spiritual formation? Who is really discipling your family? Deuteronomy 6 says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In kid in student life, we get 40 hours. You have 3,000. 3,000 hours to lead and foster the spiritual direction of your family. So is it possible that what happens at home is more important than what happens at church? So 40 hours, or a little more with some of you, um, 3,000 hours. Now, what's interesting is, is when you pull this together, when the church partners, like the church is partnering. I wrote a book called Partnering with Parents in Ministry. And what that means is the church partners with you. And so you, you want to be able to you know, engage in the church, but at the same time, you know, you've got a lot more hours. Okay? Now, again, you're not running a monastery. You're not running a nunnery. So you know, you've got other things to do. You've got homework and you know, all the other stuff that goes on with the extracurriculars and activities and dance recitals and you know, all those things that go, that go on, depending on the age of your kids, of course. But the fascinating side to it is the Shema teaches us not only that there's one God, but how it's transferred actually through the family, because most kids become Christians not at church or at crusades, they become Christians through the family. In fact, who's the most important influence in a kid's life? So say the, the studies. Mom. I don't know who said that. You said it? Yeah, mom, totally. And dads, we need to buck it up. We're number two, we need to buck it up. But we're kind of a distant second, okay? <laughs> Grandmas and grandpas, huge. But number three, aunts, uncles, friends, and peers in the next, and then the church. That doesn't mean the church isn't important. It just simply means that, you know, there's seasons in the church. Like for me, my youth pastor was the most important spiritual influence after a while. But, you know, I was raised in a home that didn't go. And so I was, a, they influenced me, not necessarily for the good, okay? Now, Jesus had a very interesting time, and this is in the Gospels, and Jesus is connecting with some of the uh, leaders in the, in the you know, Jewish tradition, and they ask Jesus a huge question. What is the most important commandment? Now, what they were doing was testing him. So I want you to look at, it's in your notes, it'll also come up on the board, but it says, Jesus was asked this question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Now, what do you think they did? They went, oh, okay, he's one of us. Because every Jew did that. If I said to this fine family, what is the plan and purpose for your family? They would have a cool plan and purpose, okay? But it's going to be a little different than this family right here with the woman who doesn't know where she was born, okay? Um, oh, you weren't here, Jeremy. She'll have to fill you in, okay? You've got to help your wife, okay? She, she needs help. Yeah, she said she was born in Kansas and she was born in California, but that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We could do some counseling later if you need that. Great. Okay, yeah, sounds great. Anyway, so, so what I'm saying is cool family, great input, but it's going to be different. Every Jew is going to answer it the same. However, then Jesus did something that was remarkable and actually could have got him killed. We don't look at this as radical. We think this is just cool what he did, but he actually changed the Shema because the next part of this is not found in the Shema. It's actually found in Leviticus. So that could have got him in big trouble. This is the first and greatest commandment. So they all went, okay. The second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, that's not in the Shema, okay? All the law and the prophets hang on these. So we have, on these two. So we have a plaque in our home, and that's a part of our family constitution, what we call the Jesus Creed, 
see? And so what is, the, what is the plan? Where are you going? Remember I said we parent by circumstance and chance and we're exhausted doing it, or do we have a purpose and a plan? This is a great purpose and a, and a great plan. But as parents, and this is hard for us to do, also there might be a couple of grandparents in here, but as parents, what we have to understand is, is that we do personally tailored discipleship. My, my Christy was very different than my daughter Rebecca, very different than my daughter Heidi, okay? And, um, and Steve, who's now married to Christy, you know, I'm kind of discipling him, and, and his, the way I disciple him is very different than the way I discipled each of the girls. I mean, it was different. But we have to look at ourselves as people who are doing that, not just as a parent who's, you know, helping them get good grades and helping them, you know, be obedient. Because here's the deal. Some of you aren't going to like this, but the bottom line is not raising obedient children. The bottom line is raising responsible adults who love God. And if that's bottom line is to raise, to help them become responsible, today we have all kinds of kids who are having failure to launch, and a lot of them are, you know, jumping off the cliff when it comes to some of their spiritual issues. And so the job is to raise responsible adults. So we parent differently, but also if we're going to add to love God, we're going to parent that differently. And, you know, this is a basic discipleship scripture in, first, uh, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, but it says, and the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men and women who will also be qualified to teach others. So what you learn, you share with your kids. Now you share with it at a developmental stage. What you're learning as an adult, you're not going to share that with your five-year-old, see? But our job is to pass faith along. One of the ways we do it is something I call the four phases of ease. I do it and you watch. So I'm going to teach my kids to pray. So I do it and they watch. And guess what? They're going to pray just exactly like me. So when they were young and if I said almighty God, they'd say almighty God. If I said thank you a lot, they'd say thank you a lot, whatever it is. Okay. But then you move it to I do it and you do it. So now you're having your kids pray. Are they going to do it as well as you know? They're going to burp in the middle of it. They're going to laugh. They're going to... Um, you know, not want to pray after a while, you know, whatever it might be, but you both do it, okay? Then you do it, and I assist. And you go, well, how do you assist? Maybe they'll say something silly, or why don't we pray for Aunt, you know, Emma's hemorrhoids or whatever, and they say something kind of weird about it or something, and then, well, hemorrhoids are kind of weird, I guess. But then, you know, you're assisting, but you're teaching and training. The mistake we make is, is we don't go through the training process when we're thinking about it, especially when it comes to some of the spiritual stuff. Okay? Same thing for making a bed, okay? and then you do it. So what are you doing? You're, these, are, these are key points. You're helping them become responsible adults, but you're also moving them from dependence on you toward independence. Okay? So an independent faith, a faith on their own, or a life on their own, you know, being able to do stuff on their own, make their bed on their own. You don't do that by just going, hey, one day you're going to have to make your bed. I mean, if you have a 15-year-old and you're still making their bed, well, then guess what? In college, they'll never make a bed, and, you know, they're going to expect their spouse to make the bed or, you know, whatever, okay? Um, Ryan Dobson, James Dobson, some of you would know James Dobson. His son lived with us for two years, and um, he was telling me that when he was in 10th grade, his parents were so frustrated because he never made the bed that they took the bed away. And so in 10th grade, he slept on the floor in a sleeping bag um, until he said he would be willing to make the bed. Not a bad idea. He made, at our house, he made his bed every morning, and our girls didn't do as good of a job with that. So again, one of the things that we figured in our house was, you know, we need to put some time into this, okay? So I want to show you a video. We're going to pull that up, and I want to show you a video. This video is one, something that my daughter Becca did when she was younger. She found this on YouTube. Now, this could work for five-year-olds, and, and, and yet it's going to work at a different level for five-year-olds. After we see this video, it's about a three-minute video. It's actually a telephone commercial in the Thai language. Does anybody know the language of Thai? Okay, well, then you're going to have to look at the subtitles. Um, but 
we then had a, a kind of a devotional time, and we would try to keep it short and simple. Kiss, keep it short and simple. We would usually sneak in chocolate or, um, or licorice as well, because that was the favorite of our kids. So I'm going to ask you about this once you see it. So here you go. So every uh, Sunday, our family started doing this. I, I had, the first time I saw it, I see you, you know, kind of wiping some tears. It's, it's moving. So our daughter Becca finds this because every Sunday we would do it and they would be responsible for one. It wasn't always as cool as this, but pretty, pretty awesome. What would you talk about with your family? What kind of a topic would you talk about after you, video, after you saw that video? Give me some, some things. I'm not going to say you can talk too. I won't tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> I was just, huh? Giving back. Well, actually, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. What a cool way of um, learning that for kids. What else? Mercy. What is it? Mercy. mercy. Oh, man. So what a great lesson of mercy. Perfect. So, huh? Humility. Humility. Was that? I love that, man. Even when the homeless guy comes and, you know, and the homeless guy goes like this, you could tell the, the daughter had the bag. I mean, you knew that was a part of his DNA. Wow. Whoa. That's, say that again for everybody to hear. Well, just working hard to mm-hmm. develop your skills and yeah. build your own capacity yeah. gives you capacity to yeah. your life. To yeah. Do and so that little boy, he could have, he obviously came from a poor family. He was stealing. He, he worked hard. He became a brain surgeon. By the way, that's a true story. I, I checked it out. Yeah, it's a true story. It's a true story of a, you know, it's not the real people or whatever, but it's a television, a telephone. They have, when you go, I I just spoke in Indonesia a while back, and their their commercials are unbelievable in in like, you know, Thailand, you know, Cambodia, Indonesia, whatever. They're longer, and they're these moving things. You You can just Google that kind of stuff. But what I'm trying to say is, is every one of us could do that with our kids. You may not know that Shema means to listen in Hebrew, okay, but and we might not have every Bible burst down, but we could pull something that way and have some good conversation. That's what a faith conversation is, okay? So anyway, that's the kind of thing that I, I want to show you with that. Now, I want to teach you another lesson. This is called the lesson of the Sabbath. It's another um, Hebrew word, and the word for Sabbath is just simply rest. Um, here's what I think. One of the biggest problems in America and the American family is this breathless pace in which we live our lives. You know, I mean, I live in Southern California, so I just think, you know, all of us are goony. And then I come to places like this, and I go, you're just as busy. I graduated from Princeton a number of years ago in my master's degree, and um, I didn't stay for the graduation because I wanted to go do youth ministry. So Kathy and I were in our little VW bug driving across, and my friend David wrote me a note, and he said, Dear Jim, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Love, David. And then he said, Missed you at graduation. Well, you know what? I'm not going to be in the arms of another woman. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be so busy doing, you know, important things that sometimes I'm going to miss the most important things. You know the, the, the sign that says speed kills? It's talking about driving. But you know what? The, the speed kills in the pace of life of, of the American family. You know, and I don't know what your uh, financial situation is, and I don't know what your, you know, demographic is, but I just drove down one 151st Street, and those aren't exactly shabby homes. I don't know if any of you live in them, but I'm just saying the truth is, is those are pretty high mortgage payments, and those are somewhat successful people, and those are people who tend to work extra hard to, to make sure that that's good. I mean, that's all great. I have no problem with that. My problem is that 
In the, in the American family, sometimes people who are in church are so busy doing the important things that they miss the most important things. I remember speaking at the Promise Keepers Pastors Conference years ago. I used to speak for Promise Keepers. And I was with a man named, um, I can't even think of his name now, but it was this amazing guy from Promise Keepers. And I, and I said, what is your secret to leadership success? Well, his name's Jack Hayford. I almost had. And uh, Jack Hayford is this incredible you know, communicator. He's still alive. And he said, well, you know what, Jim? It's not what I've chosen to do. It's what I've chosen, chosen not to do. And then he went on to say, and I was just about ready to get up and talk about family for pastors who sometimes really struggle with that. He said, you know, it's my relationship with God. It's my relationship with my wife. It's my relationship with my kids. And I thought, how incredible. He got that right. And he said this, I had to say no to some pretty important things to say yes to the most important. See? And so for some of us, what we may have to do is say no to some pretty good things, to say yes to the most important things, because speed kills, it's the result of an overcrowded life, and there's a loss of rhythm in our life, there's a loss of spiritual focus. One of the reasons why sometimes we don't lean into our lives spiritually is because we're just too busy, okay? It's not that we're bad people, we're just too busy. Loss of health, actually stressed out and at risk, so our kids, especially as they get older, they get stressed out and at risk, and they begin to do at-risk behaviors, and, and we think it's because they're some horrible kid. It's because they're so busy, okay? And we've allowed that sometimes. And then also they become vulnerable to sin. There was that great theologian, the coach of the, Vince, uh, of the uh, Green Bay Packers named Vince Lombardi, who said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I know that I'm a lousy husband when I'm fatigued. I'm a lousy father when I'm fatigued. Now, I'm not saying that we should all move from here and go live in Wyoming in a, in a commune. We have to figure out how to do it here and now, and that means being disciplined. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so part of this is discipline, I'm sorry, it's not just some, you know, waving some kind of faith thing. It means discipline. It was actually, that word in that way was actually talking more about almost a sports keeping in shape discipline. So, you know, we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. The problem with the American family is that we become overcommitted and underconnected. You say, well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, like for all of us, duh, maybe we need to slow down. Maybe we need to tweak it. I'm not saying, again, do the commune or, or say, you know, we, our kids will do, have no events. I'm just simply saying, if we're too busy, then it means we've got to back off a bit, see, until we kind of get to that place. I love what it says in the Bible in Exodus. It says, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in uh, six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and he was refreshed. Actually, the Hebrew word is closer to the word he exhaled. Some of us are never refreshed because we're just so busy all the time, see? And, And some of the ingredients to that busyness mean that we've got to be able to be proactive. And you say, well, yeah, but my my husband's never going to do this or my wife's never going to do this. Well, then you do it. But uh, there's four elements that I think need to happen within a week in a family. And these are things that we don't think about enough. One is rest. Does the family ever rest? Now, I'm not saying everybody goes, it'd be nice if you have little kids, you can take a nap. We have a grandson, 20 months old, and uh, yesterday... Um, I was watching him because my daughter Heidi is getting married, and Kathy and Heidi were dress shopping. I had no idea. The dress is going to cost more than our entire wedding, but that's another problem, which happened today. They wouldn't tell me how much the dress was. I thought that was interesting, Uh, but they bought a dress today. And they they didn't show me, and that kind of scared me too, because Heidi's a beach kid, and we'll see just, I hope hope things are covered. I just don't (laughs) pray that she's a neat Christian girl, but still. 
Um, but, the, but the point that I was going to say is, is he took a nap, and I was watch, you know, I was, I was in charge and for like an hour and a half, and I, I found myself dozing, and I, I, I slept for probably 20 minutes. Oh my gosh, I felt so refreshed after that. But the point that I'm saying is, is it's not all just going and taking naps, but does the family have a rest? Or are you just moving through it seven days a week, you know, 24-7, you know, busy, 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 see? And so again, is there rest in your family? And what do you do for rest? It might be different than what somebody else does. I'm not saying it's a 24-hour legalistic deal. I'm just saying, is there a moment of rest? Do you ever think, in this family, we could use some rest? And then what do you do for rest, okay? Another part of that is actually refresh. And they all go together, but what do you do to refresh your family? I mean, I know a family who's wonderful. They're mentors for me. And they take their kids to Cold Stone. It's not exactly great for the diet, but every Monday night they go to Cold Stone. It's an ice cream place. And uh, they have always a list to talk about homework and, you know, these issues. The kids are in that age stage. But they don't talk about it there. So it's refreshing. The kids like to go to Cold Stone. They enjoy it. The family kind of just laughs together and, and enjoys each other. Okay, so what do you do to refresh your family? It may not be Cold Stone, but what is it? I mean, I know people who've watched one comedy show on TV or whatever it might be. I don't know what you do, but what do we do to refresh as a family? Another one is restore. You know, in a week, we break apart. If I was here to speak on marriage, I speak about once a month on marriage. I'll do a marriage conference someplace. And I, I challenge people to do regular dates. And that's part of restoring. I mean, you know, we kind of break apart even as couples. Well, the same with families, we kind of break it apart. So we need, to, we need to do something to restore. For us, the restoration was Sunday. We would do this 20-minute thing. And we always had fun food. But it kind of restored each other. And we kind of, our kids would pray together. Now, when our kids were at certain ages, they didn't feel like praying or they were mad at each other still. I mean, it wasn't like it was perfect. But I'm saying, what do you do to restore? And then also, recreation. I wrote a book called 10 Building Blocks to a Solid Family. It's actually one of my favorite books I wrote a long time ago. It was actually part of a PhD dissertation that I did at the University of Greenwich in London. And it was on traits of healthy family. What does a healthy family look like? Do you know that one of the main traits, and I use this in this book, is, is play, recreation. Families that play together stay together. And I would also say families that pray together, but you know, I don't want to sound too unspiritual, but, but playing together. You say, well, my kids are little. Fantastic. You play with them then. That's easier. As they get older, it's not as easy. And I'm not saying it's going to the soccer games or it's going to their deal and watching. I'm saying, you know, connecting and playing. Anybody in here have four-year-olds or connected to a four-year-old? Four-year-old. Wow, a lot of you. Okay. Four-year-olds um, laugh more than anybody else. The peak age of laughter is four, and it's over 400 times a day. Oh, to be a four-year-old, right? Um, it's a great life. They're kind of through the terrible twos, most of them, and so they laugh like crazy. You know how many times we laugh as adults? Fifteen. So maybe we're not as fun as we used to be. And so again, do we program in some play? What the kids are doing right now, they're just playing like crazy. Maybe what they should have done was switch the seminar, and you guys went in the water and got all crazy. Okay? There you go. Okay, leave right now. Go Come back, get wet, and go make your, you know, make it happen. Huh? She's not going to let you. Yeah, okay. Um, but anyway, again, recreation. So those are ingredients. Have we ever thought about the fact that when we're thinking about our family, that we're going, God, we want them to get good grades. We want them to go to KU or K-State. My dad went to K-State, actually. Um, but, you know, you know, do we want them to go to these other places? Do we want them to Ivy schools and all this? Or do we ever think, wow, are we going to try to breathe health into the family? I think the lesson of the Shema helps us find replenishment for our overcrowded lives. So that may be something you need to think about. There's another lesson. Call it the lesson of awe. 
Uh, stands for affection, warmth, and encouragement. And so it's a form of communication. We talk a lot about, you know, the negative forms of communication, but what about the positive forms? I think every family needs awe, affection, warmth, and encouragement. Affection. You know that it takes eight to ten meaningful touches for a kid to thrive. And I'm convinced that as your kids get older, I think some of you probably have younger kids here, but as, as the kids get older, there's, you know, there's all kinds of kids at the middle school and high school and, you know, even in the university who they're having sex, but it's not because they're having sex because they, they want sex. It's because they crave affection and they're not getting it. And so if you're a person who goes, well, I was raised in a home where I didn't offer much affection or my ethnic group didn't do affection or whatever, then what I'm saying is three words, get over it. Your kids need affection. Because there are loads of people who would love to offer your kids a false affection. Some of you experienced false affection when you were growing up because you had this need for craving. And I'm not saying just because if you're, and if you have a 13-year-old son, anybody in here have sons who are like 13-ish? Okay, yeah. Don't go up to him and go, hey, kiss me on the lips in front of all of his friends at school. I mean, you know, that would like, you know, gross him out. Do this. That's what my dad did, and that's why I am bald. But <laughs> affection, see? Warmth. What is the tone like in your home? You know, it's a real sense of discipline again, but is, are you tone deaf? Or is your home a place where, again, I'm not saying there's a pl- there is any home in America where we're six inches off the ground and everything is great and we all talk with these and thous and it's perfect. No. But it, is it warm? My mom was like this. You know, my, I mean, my mom, there were four boys and my dad and we're all a little, you know, crazy. And, um, and mom had the kind of personality that, you know, a friend of mine would knock on the door. Is Jim here? No, he's playing basketball down at the high school. Well, can I come in and hang out with you? I mean, that's this woman. We all wanted to hang with her. So she had the discipline to not say everything she, she thinks. She did that with my dad. She did it with us. So she had the discipline to create a warmth atmosphere. Atmosphere is important. So we set the atmosphere in our home. Don't expect your kids to. Say you have little kids and, you know, they're going all crazy. Well, you know what? You set the atmosphere, they don't. They're, they're not even thinking about that, see? So do we set an atmosphere that's a little bit more peaceful, a little bit more loving, a little bit more gentle? Because when we do that, then the home is a, the environment, they grow better. So that's warmth. And then encouragement. You know, Mark Twain said, I can live two months on one good compliment. In fact, Jesus looked at a man named Simon and said, your name is no longer Simon. And then he nicknamed him what? Peter. Okay. Well, Peter, you know what he nicknamed him? The Rock, Stone. I mean, no one was called Peter. No one, zero. I mean, we now think of Pete's and we know that name, but that was not a name. Jesus nicknamed him. And he kind of did a little pun on that because he even said later in the scripture, and upon this rock, I will build my church, pointing at Peter. So that was a joke. I mean, that was fun because, I mean, when I say a joke, it wasn't a joke with a punchline. It was just a joke. You know, his name, I'm now calling him Peter the Rock, and he became a rock. He wasn't a rock when Jesus did that. He believed in him. So we need encouragement. And you say, well, what about discipline? We do need discipline, okay? But we need awe as well, and that's the lesson of awe. So let's talk about discipline. Let me give you five quick points. What I'm doing is kind of giving you, in some ways, the fire hose approach to some confident parenting. But a lot of us You know, I tell parents all the time, read one parenting book a year. I don't care if it's mine. Read one marriage book a year because you want to try to get on the same page and develop a common language. And so part of the common language in discipline is trying to get as much on the same page. Kathy and I do not parent the same way. And yet our kids kind of did okay. So what we had to do was get on as much on the same page. So our principles were these, rules without relationship equal rebellion. 
So if you're a rigid parent, and a lot of Christians choose to be rigid, if you're a rigid parent, rigid, rigid parenting leads to rebellion. Now, if you're a lenient parent, too lenient, because you want to be their best friend, God, by the way, you are not their best friend. They think you're old, okay? <laughs> I mean, you don't look old and you don't think you're old. They think you're old. Every kid in this room represented thinks you're old, okay? But, and, and too lenient, if you're trying to be their friend, that's not going to work, see? And so somehow we have to understand that we build relationship with our kids. And, and when you have a relationship with your kid, that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, holding the ground with discipline, but um, rules without a relationship are going to equal rebellion. Choose your battles wisely. But you need to win the battle. Okay? And, and in fact, what you might want to use are some of these phrases. Um, if your kid is, you know, frustrated with you or whatever, and you're going to win the battle, you just go, hey, if I was your age, I would feel the same way. I don't care if your kid is four or if your kid is 14. If I was your age, I'd feel the same way. And then here's the best word. You can use it as three words or one. I don't care. Nevertheless, got it? Nevertheless, this is how it is. Parents need to lead with authority. We don't talk enough to parents about leadership. You lead the home. So lead the home. You don't lead the home by screaming, shouting, biting, and hitting. You lead the home with authority. And so nobody signed up for parenting to have their kids be their best friend. So what that means sometimes is you just have to say, hey, I'm sorry. And then one other phrase, life's not fair. Because guess what? Life isn't fair. If you're raising them to become responsible adults, who I would then add love God, then they're going to have to learn pretty quick that life's not fair. Life's not fair for you. I mean, I'm, I made fun of your wife because she didn't know where she was born. So life wasn't fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, but life's not fair. Now, all of us have things that didn't happen. Guess what? That's how kids learn. So life, they have to somehow learn that life's not fair. They'll go, well, that's not fair. Because especially when you have sibling rivalry. You know, well, Christy gets to do this and Heidi doesn't. Christy got to do it at that age. Well, Heidi, you're not really ready to do that. Life's not fair. I know. See, it isn't fair, but I sure love you, and this is how we're going to do it today, see? So those are the kinds of questions, and then also, don't be afraid to apologize. You know, saying I'm sorry is a part of discipline. If you blow it, and you will, if, if there's a person here who's never screamed or done something silly or said something mean or whatever to their kids, you're like, you know, Mother Teresa, okay? So, you know, I'm just saying, say I'm sorry, that was all about me, and that wasn't about you. I'm so sorry. We move on, because what we're doing is we're kind of teaching them. And then also, we have to um, clearly express expectations. Back in the days when I was working with kids, more of the middle school, high school kids, fascinating enough, at-risk kids would always say that they didn't feel like they had clear expectations from their parents. But if you would ask the parents, because I was doing counseling, my background is a little bit of counseling, so I would do, the, I'd do some group. The parents always went, oh, I clearly expressed my expectations. And the kids would go, no. And you know what? I think actually the kids were more right sometimes than the parents, not always. Just in that one area. So clearly express your expectations. But the other thing we have to do is we have to be able to parent which is age appropriate. So, so how many of you have zero to two-year-olds in here? Okay, wow, lots of you, okay. So you're, boy, you have all, how many kids do you guys have? Three boys, okay. So you, because you have older ones, this is the youngest, you know, zero to two, but you got some older. So very interesting, because what they're doing is they're parenting in different stages, so you can't do the same thing. Zero to two, basically the word for zero to two is you're catering to your child. 
you know, this beautiful baby here. I'm like all Google eyes over this baby. How, how old is your baby? 11 weeks, sleeping through my message, I'm telling you. But anyway, you know, this, all, all mom is doing is catering to, to a zero to two-year-old, really. I mean, you can't really discipline. You can't say to your two-year-old even, you can't say, I'm putting you, you know, on, a, on the harshest time out and I want you to write 10 reasons why, you know, you're being a jerk. I mean, you can't do that. So you're basically catering. Now, two, you start moving it, okay? A lot of zero to two-year-olds. So what you, this is wonderful that there's so many people with young kids. Okay, now how many of you have two to 10-year-olds? The big, yeah, okay, I, this looked like the two to 10-year-old crowd, okay? So two to 10-year-old, what you're now doing is you're controlling them. So this is micromanaging them at the best. So, you know, you who are control freaks, you love this stage with kids because you kind of tell them what to do, okay? I mean, you're not gonna say to your eight-year-old, yeah, you can go over to the mall and just kind of play around and, you know, ask, borrow somebody's cell phone and call us and we'll come, you know, you're not gonna do that. So you're controlling them. You're micromanaging. Now, you're controlling them differently at three than you are at eight. Why? Because you're helping them become responsible adults who love God. So they may have to fall and skin their knee, and then you pick them up, but they're going to they're gonna have to do some of that to learn because we learn through our failures, okay? Then we move, and this is hard, but we move to coaching. So how many of you have 10 years old to, say, 13, 14 Okay, and again, some of you had your hands up there. So coaching, and this is even with babies, you want to be able to hear this. Your job is now, you're not controlling any longer. You're not catering, you're not controlling. You're actually coaching. Coaches have timeouts. Coaches lead. Coaches give direction. But some of the decisions are made by the kids. Why? Because you want them to become a responsible adult. If you make all the decisions and you're a helicopter parent, they're never going to learn. And there will be a failure to launch. Be, you, we're raising an entitled generation, and they're entitled partly because parents didn't move to coaching. So then you coach. Then you move. How many of you have 15 and older? Anybody in here? Okay, yeah, man, this crowd, you guys have made a lot of babies over here too. Third row. Um, so for people who are like 15 and older, you're kind of into consulting. That means they should be doing most of the day-to-day -day decisions. You go, I don't, you don't understand my kid. They're not responsible. Then you pull back a little bit, but the job is to consult because they're almost ready to be launched. And so you're consulting them. Now, let's say you're still into the control stage. How many of you in here are a little bit, I use the word control freak, but let me say it nicer, can, can tend to move into the controlling, you know, you're, maybe you're a little controlling. Okay, so this is not hard. You've got you to wean, just like you weaned your baby from mother's breast, you've got to wean your kid. It's not easy for the weenie or the weaner. <laughs> know what I mean? So, so again, now at consulting, that's tough. Because you go, they're going to make some mistakes. That's how they're going to learn. And then you move to, to where I'm at with my kids. It's called care. My day-to-day -day parenting is over. As much as I'd still like to tell them. In fact, I was just, I'm doing some writing in this area right now on parenting your adult children. And one of the phrases, which is only because, I only got this phrase because it happens in my life with my kids. But I said, you know, unsolicited advice is almost always taken as um, a negative issue for my kids. But that's because I have to move to those, to those areas, see? That's a critical, so that issue, you, you, you discipline, but with a lot of grace. And so you create a grace-filled home, but you do that, but also you have those firm boundaries. You have leadership. It's a lot about leadership here, okay? Now, fascinating enough, when you, when you, when you look at this, this isn't easy, okay? But it, but it is important. Now, I wanna move to another lesson. And this is the lesson of morals and values. I'm not going to spend tons of time on it, but it's kind of important. 
At Homeward, the organization I work with, we, we are the largest provider of parenting seminars in the U.S., so I think we have 14 seminars going on next weekend. Um, but one of them that we talk a lot about is the area of sexuality and morals and values. And so for those of you who have, the, this is kind of more the, the younger baby, you know, you have the little babies, you still want to be students of the culture, okay? So what that means is, is when we become students of the culture, we're not becoming students of the culture of a two-year-old, we're becoming students of the culture of where the culture is going. A lot of times as Christians, we whine like crazy about culture. But frankly, we've got to make sure that we're learning what the culture is teaching so that we can kind of go against that, if you would, if the culture is teaching something, you know, that's absolutely horrible. So let me speak just for a moment about sex and sexuality pretty bluntly. All studies show this, that the more positive value-centered sex education kids receive from home, the less promiscuous they'll be. But watch this. How many of you received good, positive, healthy sex education when you were growing up from your parents? Raise your hands. One, you're thinking maybe. Two, three, four. Only four of you? Five? You guys need to do a series on sex for these adults. I mean, they made babies, but they don't have a freaking clue what they're doing. Um, just kidding. But anyway, the point being is that because you didn't receive it, that you, you sometimes don't know what to do. But here's the deal. I didn't receive it, but, you know, it was important. So my kids got Jim, or dad, the awkward one. Because if you think it's supposed to be easy to talk to your kids about sex, it's not. It's awkward. But what you don't want to do is do lecture, you know, like that. So, so when do you start talking to kids about sex? Body parts. She's got it. So you actually start at least by three to five, okay? And when you talk, and you talk about body parts. So what is the deal? We have a bunch of 11-year-olds calling their private parts their wing-a-ding-ding because we didn't tell them their private parts. I mean, it's true. We did this with Christy. We said, you know, this is your nose. And she goes, nose, can you say eyes, eyes, chin, chin, elbow. And then we sort of miss major parts of the body. These are your knees. You know, so this kid, I mean, she's aware that she has other body parts, but, you know, we didn't talk about it. So it's not like she had the cognitive ability to, to go, you know, my parents aren't talking about my private parts. But, you know, maybe that meant that it wasn't all that important to her. Okay, so with Becca, we changed that. And so we, we immediately, I mean, she was like little and we're going, this is your nose, nose, chin, chin. And then we said, this is your vagina. You guys talk about this word all the time up here, don't you? Yeah. Whenever we can. Whenever you can, good. So, <laughs> oh man. So she couldn't say the word vagina. This is way too much information. I don't know what is wrong with me today, but she said the word vagina. So our whole family calls that part of a woman's body the vagina at this point. And I'm like, oh geez. So she's about two and a half, and we're at the grocery store, and I don't know where Christy was, and Heidi was like a little baby, but she wasn't there either, so it's just, and they would have all been born. So she's at the grocery store, and this little old lady, you know, they always do this with little kids, she's, you know, she's in her stroller, so you got the, you know, soon on this, and, and she, and this old lady goes, you are so cute, and Rebecca goes, I know, and my vagina itches, and this lady goes like, <laughs> Kath, Kathy looks at me, and I'm like, I need to go get some milk, I'm leaving, you know. But that was a positive thing. So again, it's what, well, you know, we, we think that you're, you know, when I said like, you know, two, three, four, five, so this is a little book called God Made Your Body. I'm not going to read the whole book, but God made boys and God made girls. Notice how I use the word God, because even some of you who had good people talking to you about sex education, maybe they didn't make it, you know, God honoring. 
Well, God made your body. God made boys. God made girls. God made all shapes and sizes. He created all colors and languages. God made you. And so that's sex education, see? God made some boys and girls with itty-bitty noses. Some he made with big ears. God gave boys and girls different colored eyes. What color are your eyes? See? And it goes into the hair. Okay, but, you know, we're going to get to the part, that part. You know, it was God's idea. This is very spiritual. It was part of the discipleship. It was God's idea for every little boy to have a penis and testicles. Okay? Because that's what they call it. It's okay to do that. Give girls this, you know, every little girl... God gave a vagina and a womb. Can you imagine a three-year-old knowing what a womb was? I don't think I totally understood a womb until um, we adopted Christy, and I'm sure I didn't know what a womb was then. And then, you know, Miracle of Miracles, Becca and um, Heidi came along. And uh, so, you know, I kind of figured out the womb. But you know what? You begin at at a young age. Now, some of you feel uncomfortable with me saying those words. I totally understand that. But that's what you do at the young age. That's sex education. Now, how many of you have six to nine year olds? Yeah, a lot of you. So, and again, I'm not going to now spend the rest of the time reading books, but I, I want to get to this because, again, it says, do you know a family that's expecting a baby? A six, nine-year-old, they have tons of questions, so you answer their questions. Okay. God's plan for families began, and that's where, where we go. But I'm going I'm to skip some pages, but I want to read something to you that's so critical. See these little children, they're going like this. One of the major ages of child sexual assaults is between six and nine. There's not a, even a, I mean, they, they, are, they have a sexuality, and 80% of child sexual assaults are done between someone that they know, oftentimes love and trust. So, we're not talking to them about this. I'm going to read you two paragraphs, and I'll set the books down. If anyone ever tries to touch your private parts or ask you to touch their private parts, tell that person to stop. See what the children are doing? No matter who it is, even if it's a friend or someone in your family, okay? You're reading this to your children. You know, this is, this is sex education, Um, They are not allowed to touch you in any way that makes you feel uncomfortable. And if this happens, you can tell a grown-up you trust right away. You can tell mommy or you can tell daddy, and we would not get mad at you. So what you're doing is you're doing preventative work here. Most of us didn't get preventative work. That doesn't mean that every family where they did this, that, you know, some kid's still going to get assaulted, and it's horrible. One out of three young women today, by the time they're 19, will be sexually assaulted. That's horrible. But we can break part of that by us just having these kind of conversations. That's why it's so key. Last, last paragraph. This is my shot to a six to nine-year-old. Sharing your private parts is something to save for your husband or wife when you are grown and married. That is a part of God's wonderful plan. Now, again, you're going to have a precocious eight or nine-year-old that's going to go, what are you talking about? Okay, and then you say, you know what? At another stage, just in a couple years. But today we wait too long because it should happen somewhere between between 10 and 13. The reason it should be between 10 and 13 is because kids need to hear this stuff when they're at puberty. You know, you know what age kids will see pornography today? Age 11. That's the average age in America. And it, it will be your kids, and most of your kids, it'll be a pop-up, it'll be accidental. I'm not saying that they're all, you know, I mean, but, I mean if you're a, bo- a middle school boy, <laughs> you know, if, and somebody says, one of the big things in middle school, at least by the middle school that my daughter teaches at, is you can see Miley Cyrus's breast because she liked to show off her breast. So she has some, you know, slips there on purpose. And so, what, you know, the junior high boys were all, you know, checking out Miley Cyrus's top. Well, I would much rather have you talk to your children about healthy sexuality than Miley Cyrus. That's not to burn on this incredible woman and a great singer and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, she's, she's, she doesn't have it together, see? 
And so the number one place kids get sex education today is the internet. Okay. And so what that means is, no, we, we've got to bring this back, you know, to our world. And one of the other things we've got to be able to talk about is um, kind of going to the bottom of your list. And it's going to sh pop back up here now. But so those are the, you know, some of the ages, next age would be 14 and older. You just talk about anything uh, and everything pretty much. But then we're going to skip pornography for a second. And we're going to look at the, the purity code because I think that's about 10, 11, 12. In honor of God, so it's, it's spiritual again. In honor of my family and my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity. It's kind of an old word, okay? And some people would call it sexual integrity now. But what you want is you want this to come from you, not from people who are speaking to them. And I mean, I mean you want the church to do this too. Encourage the church to do this kind of stuff. And I'm sure your church probably does. But it, it involves four things, pretty important. Number one, it involves honoring God with your body. That's a scripture. There's a scripture that goes with that. The scripture is in your notes. It involves renewing your mind for good. The scripture, again, is in your notes, Romans 12. Uh, turning your eyes from worthless things. That's taken totally out of the living Bible um, in Psalm 119, I think uh, 119.37, if it's, it's in your notes. And then the last one is guard your heart above all else. So the Bible says in Proverbs 4, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. You know what? Even some of you who had your parents teach you, did they teach you how to guard their heart? Maybe you, they did, maybe they didn't. I mean, Kathy and I tried to do this. It, didn't, it was hard. And guarding your heart is much more than a sexual term. You know, you guard your heart from in faith, money, so many other things. But we need a generation of kids who know how to guard their heart, and they're going to learn it from their parents. And so again, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying it's, not, it's going to be comfortable, but I am saying that you take the lead seeing this. And that's kind of the lesson, if you would, of, of morals and values. Now, again, there's a lot more we could talk about on that. Um, but I want to go back up to the next, to the other one to mention um, pornography. The reason I want to mention this is because what was the age that the average kids will see pornography? 11. 11. Greatest new users of internet pornography are boys, ages 12 to 17. You know who's right behind them? Girls. See, it didn't used to be that way. And maybe even some of you women are like, seriously? I get guys, but they're visual. But women, what we're seeing with women is actually even more frightening. And I've spent a lot of time in this area. And what I'm seeing is that young women, what they, I mean, they don't get as excited about seeing a naked body as a guy does. But what women will do is, you know, they are into intimacy, and intimacy means connection. So what they'll do is their name is Jennifer, and they become Lindsay, and they get a new Gmail account. And so now they're talking with boys and saying, you know, they're, they're, it's pornography with words. You know, I, I would let you do this to me or whatever. They're experimenting, but they're not really, you know, they're 13 and they're, you know, saying they're 17 or whatever. So there's all this kind of lying stuff that goes on or almost chat room type things. So what I'm saying is, is girl, we have to be careful with girls too. A lot of times we'll say, well, we have daughters, so that's not a big deal. No, we have to teach our kids this. Every parent needs to hear this, that we start with, there's, there's escalation of pornography. So you start with viewing pornography. Okay, now it could either be chatting or viewing, but mainly it's viewing. And mainly it's boys. So what happens when a kid sees pornography, their mind takes a picture of it. So again, I'm 63 years old. When I was in eighth grade, I saw a woman without her top on. Okay. What was the magazine? Playboy. No. National Geographic. And it, so it was legal. It was by my bedspan, and my parents are going, cool, he's reading National Geographic. It was a woman in the Amazon. It's not a pretty picture, believe me. She was in the Amazon. She had a spear. 
she had no top on. She had some kind of skirt. And I say, I'm, I'm 63. I still remember this. She had a cigarette in her mouth and she looked bored. But I wasn't looking at the cigarette in her mouth or the spear or anything else. I was looking at her, her breasts. Okay. So what I'm saying is, was that pornography? Not really pornography, but the fact is I still have the picture in my mind. Well, what are kids seeing today? They're not just seeing that. See. And so the point is, is they view it and then their mind takes a picture of it. But then pretty quickly through the escalation, this won't happen to everybody, but the extra, it becomes an addiction. Oversimplification here, but addiction just means I want more. Okay. I crave more. And so, you know, they want to see it more. And so what you see is you see a kid will view, um, they'll get addicted where they'll, they'll want some more, and then it escalates. So escalation means part of the addiction is, you know, I'm going to watch this more often. First I feel shame and now I don't, but, you know, I'm kind of really into this right now. So it escalates. Then we move from escalation to desensitized. So when you're desensitized, that means what was gross a year ago or two months ago or two weeks ago is not gross anymore. So what they're craving is something that they didn't even, they were repulsed by a year ago, but now they're not repulsed by it. And what I'm doing is I'm taking you through, this could be for adults as well. But what I'm doing is I'm taking you through this. There's a guy in St. Joseph's, St. Joseph, is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Who we got tied in with, who's a pastor who got caught with this. This was his story. He, he was a wonderful man and he is a wonderful man, I'm sure. But he started viewing pornography and it came on. Well, then he started acting it out. So first you acted out in your mind. And so what you have kids doing is acting out in their mind and there may be some masturbation that goes with that as kids get older. But then also, then they want to act out in person. See? And so this is the reason that as parents, we've got to help our kids think through this. And it means we do, and I, I, I'm putting no time into this in terms of the competent parenting side, but this is why we do need filters. And this is why we do need accountability systems. This is why we do need to talk to our kids. And if your kid is older, a lot of you don't have those older kids, but if your kid is somewhat older and they did get caught viewing pornography, I mean, don't, you know, beat them. But it's your chance to then teach them healthy sexuality. So what's the, how do you, how do you, what do you do? You teach them not this, but that. See? So it's really key that, that we as parents understand that issue. And again, we could spend to tons of times. Right as we close, I want to affirm you with two other lessons that I think the church is doing really well. I don't need to spend time on this. But the, the next one is called the lesson of blessing. You know, Don took me down stairs and I saw these pictures of these babies and the blessings that parents have written. Honestly, I, I, I got the chills. I want my church to do it. I took a photo of it. I'm going to send it to our peeps. Um, in the Old Testament, there were blessings. And so I just want to give you encouragement to keep doing those kinds of blessings, the what you do at this church with baptism, certain things. I wrote a book called Pass It On with my friend Jeremy Lee. And what it is, is it's, it, it's rites of passages starting at kindergarten through 12th grade. And so like in second grade, we, have a, we give a Bible, a, you know, we have the family gives a Bible. I think you guys do it in first grade. Um, in ninth grade, we have a, driver, a driver's license contract. So it's not all, all you know, like a, you know, baptism type thing. Um, purity happens in seventh grade. Uh, invitation to generosity happens at kindergarten where they do something, you know, for serving. It's cool. You have a manhood womanhood ceremony at 18. When I spoke for Promise Keepers, uh, Randy Phillips, who was the president, always used to say to the men, a man is not a man until his father tells him. As soon as he would say it, men would start weeping because their fathers never told them. And so again, you know, find ways to bless your, your kids, but it doesn't always have to be hyper-spiritual. Bless them the way you know, bless, use blessings. 
as often as you can and do what you're doing here at the church and add to it, okay? So you're going to speak blessings. You're going to believe the blessing because some of your kids are going to get to a place where their self-image is not good. And so you're going to have to believe for them, okay? You believe in them. Jesus believed, as I gave that illustration, in Simon, he became Peter, but he believed him to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He wasn't the leader of the Jerusalem church when, when Peter, I mean, when Jesus started speaking about that. So believe the blessing. Be the blessing. Be a role model. I remember going to a Christian school, and there was a chapel guy, and I used to call him kind of nerdy, but he was a bald-headed missionary guy, and I realize I now look like this guy. And, uh, but he, st- he, he started by pointing, and he said, you're the only Jesus somebody knows, and he pointed at somebody. I wasn't paying any attention. I was doing my homework. I was sitting in the back. He goes, you're the only Jesus somebody knows. On the 10th time, and I counted it, he looked straight at me, and he said, you're the only Jesus somebody knows. And it was as if God was speaking to me, saying, you represent Jesus Christ to a family who doesn't know him. And when they want to check in on what Jesus is doing on planet Earth, they're checking in with you, Jim. Not that you have to be perfect. See. And so what I realize is I'm a role model to my kids, not perfection, authenticity. Every kid, no matter what the age, they could be three, they're looking for authenticity. They don't even know how to say the word or know the word, but that's what they're looking for. And that's what the 13-year-olds are looking for and the 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds. And then you celebrate rites of passages. That's where you're doing some really neat things here at this church. I want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. Because confident parenting, as we said from the beginning, is really having a plan and a purpose. Where are you going? What's your goal? Well, the goal that I gave you was to raise responsible adults who love God. So if you're going to do that, you're going to parent in that way. You're going to discipline in that way. You're going to talk about the morals and values in that way. I mean, everything kind of goes along with this. But it's, again, going back to what we said before, it's, it's generational. How many of you know the name of your great, 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 great grandparents? Anybody in here know it? Somebody's like gone through it? You'd know? Okay. So we have one person who does, but most of us don't. But the Bible says, as I started this off, that you become, really, you're influenced by your great, 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 great grandparent. So my great, great grandparents, they're, they're, in a, they're in Hoyt, Kansas. They're in some cemetery in Hoyt, Kansas. Now, I don't know what they, I don't know anything about them, but I am partly who I am today because of those people, good or bad. See? So the point being is that we're, we're parenting generationally. Okay, and in gen- and parenting generationally, then that means that um, we want to have more of a plan and a purpose, I guess is what I'm saying. So I threw a lot of stuff at you in a pretty quick time period, okay? And, um, you know, the kids are going to get antsy here in a moment. So I'll stay here as long as you want. I've got a flight tomorrow morning at 7 in the morning. Um, I don't think you'll take me up on that. But, you know, I'm glad to, you know, because I threw out a bunch of stuff at you if there was somehow you wanted a little bit of a tweak to, you know, to come and talk to me personally. But I'm very aware and cognizant of the fact that you guys need to get, you got other things going on here too. But I want to I give you one last story. I was speaking to about 8,000 kids in Colorado. This is in my youth speaker days. And I was really excited about it. It was an international convention in fact, I spoke at the Evangelical Free International Convention. I used to do that. This was the Covenant Churches. All these kids. It was at uh, Colorado State. And I hadn't gone yet. And what was happening was my mom was dying. So she was in hospice. And uh, I called up my friend who was running this event. And I said, you know, I really want to do this event. But my mom is dying. And I just need to tell you right now, I've never canceled on an event. But I don't know what to do. And he said, well, I'm going to pray that your mom s- stays with it. 
And uh, I said, here's what I've done. I've asked my friend Ken Davis, his friend too, Ken Davis to speak if I can't do it. So that's really, he's a lot better speaker than me. And he lived in Denver at the time. He now lives in Nashville. So he goes, great. Thank you for doing that. However, we had him last time. We really want you. So he didn't let me off the hook. I went, okay. So the day before I'm supposed to go to Colorado, my mom is hanging in there. And I walk in, and this is a lady who was like on hospice, and she was, you know, morphined out and stuff. And she's sitting in a chair, and she goes, well, Jimmy. I walk in, and she goes, Jimmy, I thought you were going to Colorado. And I didn't want to go, well, actually, I thought you were going to die. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. My dad walks in and goes, hey, your mom told me you are going to Colorado. And I said, well, I don't know. I, I may. I wouldn't have to go till tomorrow, but... He goes, I'm taking her out for ice cream. She's doing great. You get your butt to Colorado. This is my dad speaking. You get your butt to Colorado. Go talk to the kids. Come on back. What do you think she's going to die or something? I'm like, no, I guess not, Dad. So I get on the phone as I'm, and Kathy wasn't with me. She usually was with me. I go, you'll never believe this. Mom is in a chair. Dad is taking her out for ice cream. There's quiet on the back. I'm the eternal optimist in our, you know, in our relationship anyway. And Kathy's like, seriously, Jim, do you just don't do this because you think you need to go to Colorado? I mean, they, God can use somebody else to speak. And I go, I know, I'm not saying this. Mom is in a chair. So she goes, well, let's go tomorrow. Let's be packed and let's check it out because Ken can just drive up there that night. So I go kind of early and uh, I bring Kathy and mom is sitting in the chair again. And she goes, well, Jimmy, Kathy, I didn't expect you today. Jimmy, I thought you were going to Colorado. She's as clear as could be. This is a lady who didn't know me like three days before. So again, same thing. I, I went, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know what to say. And Kathy's looking at me and I'm looking, and my dad comes in and goes, hey, when's your flight to Colorado? You need to get to Colorado, you know? And so I look at Kathy and she kind of went, so we get in, back in the car after a little while. I give mom a kiss and we're, we're gone. I get, in the, I get in the airplane. I go there. I speak that night. It was awesome. Went out with my friend Duffy Robbins for dinner late. And then I came back, and I'd had my cell phone off because I'd been speaking, so the light is on in my room, and I get the message, call my wife. I called Kathy, and she goes, Jim, do you know? I went, what? She goes, your mom died. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And here I am sitting in this hotel room. So I, you know, call, try to get a flight, couldn't get any that night, so, you know, it was a horrible night. And I call, I call my friend and said, I know I'm supposed to speak at 10 o'clock. And, you know, it's not like they have tons of people who are going to speak to 8,000 people. So, you know, they had to work it out. But he, he was great, gracious. So I get on the plane, and I, you think weird things when this happens, if any of you have had this. And I'm going, what were the last words my mom said to me? And I went, oh, my gosh. When I went to kiss her, and again, she, she was not all together. I mean, she had tubes up her nose and stuff. But I kissed her on the forehead, and she cupped my face, and she said, Jimmy, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. Now, again, Jimmy was, you know, late 50s. I started crying <laughs> on that airplane. And I mean, it wasn't like the, your eyes well up with tears. It was like, <laughs> the lady next to me must have just thought I was a complete idiot. But what I realized was I was blessed by my mom. At our death. I still live with that blessing. So what I'm saying to you is dump everything I've said, but make sure that you bless your kids. And make sure that they know beyond a shadow. You love them, of course. And you are proud of them. But do they, do they hear that? Do they hear those words? Okay. You know, I say that to my kids all the time. And it's mushy and it's, and it's awkward for them. And, you know, as they've gotten older, they're like, oh, man, Dad. But you know what? I want them to know. When I get on a plane, if I'm going to travel someplace, I'm leaving from here to speak tomorrow in Guatemala um, to 20,000 people at a church of 20,000. Um, Believe me, all three of those girls got an I love you and I'm proud of you. 
And there's even times when I kind of wasn't all proud of them, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I had to find reasons to be proud. But the point is, is make sure that your kids know that. That's the foundation in which we live. And you can then be a confident parent. Let me, let me pray for you and then, oh, I just saw Don. I didn't even know you were in here. Are you going to come up and close? Uh, let me pray for you. Then again, if you have questions, you need to get to your kids, I realize. But if you also want to talk, send one person that way. I'm glad to hang out for as long as, I, as, as you'd like. But let me pray. Almighty God, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for this church and what the church is doing to, to help families succeed. But I pray for our families. Today, we've just had a, you know, kind of almost a water hose, fire hose, if you would, of, of content. But I pray, God, that something in this content would help either affirm us, which we desperately need affirmation as parents, but it would also challenge us to do um, and be all that you want us to be. Bless these families in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you for the privilege to be with you, honestly. Thanks.